Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hannah, my love, why is your cheek so pale? How chance the roses there do fade so fast? Be like for want of rain, which I could well beteem them from the tempest of mine eyes. I me, for aught that I could ever read, could ever hear by tale or history, the course of true love never did run smooth. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. You have joined us for Act One of A Midsummer Night's Dream. You just heard... A little bit of Act One. That was Lysander and Hermia. The course of true love never did run smooth. And we will find that out as we go through this play. I am joined by not one guest, not two guests, but three guests. I'm going to start with Heidi White because Heidi and I are on another podcast together. Close reads, but Heidi has been a little bit of a stranger to this show. Heidi, that's purple. I think it's because would you say purple? Hurt. No, I hurtful. said it's hurtful. <laughs> I have my feelings um, hurt. Your feelings are hurt. Yeah, I think it's because you're in such high demand. We can't afford you anymore. I think that's are what's you, going wait, on. People are getting Katie? paid for this. <laughs> Moving this on. Me. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Heidi. Heidi is a teacher, editor, podcaster, and author. She teaches humanities at St. Hild School in Colorado Springs, is a regular contributor to our sister podcast, Close Reads, and is the author of the forthcoming book, The Divided Soul, Reuniting Duty and Desire in Literature and Life. Heidi, welcome back to A Midsummer Night's Dream. I know this is one of your favorites. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. My pleasure. My, our other two guests are Emily and Ian Andrews. Emily is Associate Director for Center for Lit and a candidate for the MA in Humanities at Faulkner University. She lives and works in Spokane, Washington, where she reads, writes, podcasts, and reads. <laughs> Emily, welcome back. Thank you. We had you and Ian on for 
two gentlemen of Verona, and it went so well that I insisted on bringing you back again. That was so you much guys fun. Both, yeah, and you both were like, oh, can we do Midsummer Night's Dream? We are, and here we delighted are. Delighted to be here, and with Heidi, who I haven't seen in That's such a right. long time. I know this is like a reunion. <laughs> Let me tell you about Ian. He's associate director for Center for Lit and host of Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. When he's not working, he spends time pursuing his MA in biblical and theological studies at Knox Theological Seminary, and indulging in abiding passion for film and television. Ian, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here too. I'm going to start with a popularity question. <laughs> Several years ago, Britons were polled about what plays they knew from Shakespeare's canon, what plays they had either seen or read. Okay. Either seen or okay. read. That's right. Those were the, there's the, I think the only two criteria. And they ranked all 37 plays from most to least popular. Does anyone, I would like for all three of you, in the order in which you were introduced, to tell me what place you think A Midsummer Night's Dream is in the 37 rankings. What a tricky question. Oh, third. it's a tricky question. I think it's third. You think it's third. Heidi thinks it's third. Emily? I was going to say third, but I can't know. So I'll say second. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to go lower. Great. I'm going to say fifth. Okay. Third, second, and fifth. The answer is third. Nice. The answer I is think, third. Can I make a guess on what comes first? Romeo yeah, and please Juliet. Do. Please do. Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth. You are exactly. How did you know that? I just guessed. That just seems like the right ranking to me. This is why I'm in such high demand and why I get paid so much. <laughs> totally. Totally. You are like a ranking expert. I wonder um, if we could get all of the top 10 if we thought about it. Hard okay, enough. let's try it. I think this is fun. So, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, number one, Macbeth, number two, Midsummer Night's Dream, number three. What is number four? Much um, about nothing. I was going to, yeah. It is not much to do about nothing. Is mm -hmm. it? Um, Hamlet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. It's Hamlet. It's got to be Hamlet. It's Hamlet. Fifth? I'm going to go with much ado. <laughs> still not much ado. It's still not. Lear? That's so surprising. Yeah, maybe Lear. Not Lear. This is a tough one. Merchant of Venice. Merchant of Venice. Well done. Well good, done. Good one. Good job, Ian. Then... One more before we get to much ado about it. I saved you guys there. I saved yeah. you. Uh, Julius Caesar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I would have guessed mm -hmm. that it's not Julius Caesar. Twelfth night. Twelve. How did you know that, Emily? <laughs> I would have never guessed twelfth night. It's twelfth night. Honestly, then just... much ado about nothing. So is and that then, seven? That is that's seven. Three left okay. in the top ten. It's not three Anthony more. No, nope. that's, that's mm -hmm. way lower. I think King Lear is probably in the top 10. I maybe number so. 10. It's not. It's, it's not. not. How on earth? Okay. Othello? Okay. Othello is ninth. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is it a history play? Or it got to be Julius no. Caesar. It's not Henry V? No. How? No. It's or a comedy. It's a comedy. It's a comedy. It's a comedy. comedy. As you like it? This is a surprising comedy. Are we surprised right now? You, oh, The Tempest. You, uh, the Tempest is number 10. Okay. So we're missing number eight. You're missing number eight. What on earth? A comedy. 
A um, comedy or a romance? Well, that's a fun question. What's the difference <laughs> exactly? <laughs> What's the difference? It's definitely a romance and it's definitely the a comedy. Tale? No. Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew. I'm so surprised that it's Taming of the Shrew. I thought, I thought Are you so surprised? But I guess right now it, it is kind of a cultural moment for Shrew. I, I've seen it done a couple of times in a very subversive kind of way. No kidding. Um, so this is on the comeback. That was so fun. <laughs> okay. That was fun. Now, here's my follow up question to that Why is Midsummer Night's Dream the third most popular Shakespeare play? I, I would love to hear your best explanation about why Midsummer is so popular. I think one of the reasons is probably because it has such, it has very memorable lines, right? The course of true love never did run smooth. Yeah. Love is blind. Love is right. It has a lot of, and it's very characteristic of Shakespearean comedy. It has pretty much every classic element of Shakespearean comedy in there. And so it seems kind of like the classic, if you're going to put on a high school or college production, go with Midsummer, And it's just a really great play. It's his first great comedy. Uh, and the characters are really fun. And it it actually has some pretty profound contemplations that shine through the lighthearted plot. I think it's, I think that's it's just kind of all around delightful. Mm. What do you guys okay. think? Well, it's also his first play to include the supernatural. And I think that the fairy element captures the imagination. And it's like this glorious combination of classical fairyhood, but also English countryside mm, mm. Um, that I think sticks in the popular imagination. Yeah. My answer is a lot simpler than Emily's, but to the same point, Puck. Puck yeah. is why this play is popular. I mean, it has to be on the top three or four most iconic characters in all of Shakespeare's corpus. I'm expecting the two of you to be very agreeable on this podcast because, well, to each other, because you are married to one another. The course of your true love, yes, the course of your true love has run it's smooth. Almost like you've never hung out with us. <laughs> I was so just gonna yeah, right? say. I was just gonna say, Heidi, have you been? Have you been on a podcast with these? All two? right, so we've got a real marriage. This is exciting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You've been married, I, and you still think we're going to be agreeable in the air, huh? I can't wait. <laughs> I have another theory to add to the stew. I, I think my first vote would be, this is the high school performance, mm -hmm. right? Mm. Like, What do you mean? Because I think there's a few different reasons why this is. I, I think if you just polled public high school performances, what is your most performed Shakespeare play? It would not be Romeo and Juliet. It would not be Macbeth. It would be... Midsummer Night's Dream. Hmm. And I think there's a few reasons why. There's no violence, relatively no violence. Um, there's no, you don't have to have two great actors to play Romeo and Juliet, or even one really great actor to play Macbeth and another really great actor to play Lady Macbeth. You can have a bunch of actors that are just kind of getting their feet underneath them, and you can sprinkle them throughout the play because. Who's the lead in A Midsummer mm. Night's Dream? Yeah. Puck is maybe the most popular character, but is he the lead? He's uh, He doesn't have enough stage time to really be the lead. Yeah, right. right. That's true. That's interesting. Yeah, when we have two sets of lovers, to your point. We have two and sets of lovers, interchangeable, right. which is also totally. So you could the say point. there aren't any necessary starring roles, or they're all starring roles. 
Right. Well, everybody, gets everybody, gets everybody gets a part. Everybody gets a part. Which is kind of representative of like the public education like approach <laughs> to excellence. Yeah. Fair enough. Hello. <laughs> I did say that. Good job. Um, you did. You really just went for it. There, there's a lot of other like memorable characters, bottom, Oberon, the fairy. Okay, but I haven't even really said what my other theories. My other theory is this. Think about who actually chooses the plays that get performed in high schools or in theaters. Like, who's the person that makes that decision? It's the director. A director will say, hey, I want to do Death of a Salesman this year, or I want to do, you know, Goodnight Mother, or whatever the play is. And I think that this play more than any other play of Shakespeare's is the director's play. Hmm. And what I mean by that is the play begs for um, elaborate staging, for creative blocking, for really fun and fanciful uh, costuming. As a matter of fact, there's a really good uh, free YouTube complete production that I was watching last night. It's got to be one of the most elaborate productions that I've ever seen on a stage. Mm -hmm. It starts, just to give you a little hint, it starts with this big kind of bell-shaped sheet that is hanging from the rafters down toward the stage and up into the... So imagine just a big kind of cupped sheet and growing into this cupped sheet just think about the expense for a second as I'm describing this, <laughs> is a multi-brambled trunked tree that's growing up into this sheet. And the first thing that we see, and I don't really know what it meant right now, is a guy <laughs> step out from the side stage with a, um, oh my gosh, what's the name of the, the wood, a chainsaw. And he cuts the brambles of the tree and the, this kind of belled ballooned sheet kind of lifts up to the ceiling and then later later lowers and there are characters within it. And we've only gotten to like the first 30 seconds of the play. Like, I don't think that any (laughs) like words have actually been exchanged yet. So that's why my contention is this play is directors love to show off in this play. It's like, it's like Mm. a, almost a, uh, I don't know what you would call it. It's a canvas. Mm. It's a canvas for the director's paint. So I Mm. think it gets chosen often enough. And I've said all that because I need to tell you, this is not my favorite Shakespeare play. And I'm hoping that this podcast will turn it around. This has happened from time to time. I've shown up for the plays, the thing kind of a little bit grumpy in my heart (laughs) because- the play is not my favorite play. And then I get halfway in and I'm like, oh, when I talk about it with friends, I kind of fall in love with it a little bit. So well, all 37 of them can't be your favorite. If they can't all be my favorite. The whole thing. They can't all be my favorite. <laughs> and th- like, I need to say, I showed up with Sarah Jane Bentley and Brandon LeBlanc for Troilus and Cressida, ready to have my heart changed. And it definitely didn't. That play. <laughs> oh my gosh. That play, you guys, I can't. I mean, I love William Shakespeare. 
You came out of that podcast shaken in your belief about Shakespeare's identity, I, though. So. No. Well, no, 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 no. That's not the one. It was the one afterwards. Sarah okay. Jane and I did a kind of like, she mentions in Troilus and Cressida, I'm not sure that Shakespeare is the author of the plays. I was like, Sarah Jane, come on. Come on. Yeah, what I always say scholar. to people who say that is, in this Christian home, we believe in William Shakespeare. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, as, for, yeah. as for me and my Here household. I, <laughs> I can do I no other. I shall not recant. That's <laughs> right. That's right. The stake first. The stake. Yeah, right, know, right, right, Tim, right. Tim is, Tim is being led over to the dark side these days. I'm actually, oh, man. we, we should, faith, brother. we should, not, we should not have that discussion now. I will just say <laughs> my faith has been shaken and I am not a like Shakespeare truther. I'm like, no, it's the glove maker from Stratford upon Avon. Yeah, it's that okay, guy. Okay, okay. Really quick though. I yeah, know that yeah. you talked to James Shapiro, of which yeah. I will always be jealous. You have read his book, Contested Will, right? No. And okay. someone kind of called Please me out. Do. Yeah. They called me out and they were just like, dude, he's going to slap you down. So what <laughs> I would really love to do is get Gwen, the author of this kind of like Shakespeare's not the author book, and James Shapiro in the same room at the same time and just like turn the mics on. But you know what? That might be beyond the capacity of even this <laughs> noble Shakespeare podcast. <laughs> Let me just set up act one of our play. It begins relatively simply, like, like many other Shakespeare plays. There is a couple that's in love that is being barred from their love by a father, a nobleman. So Aegeus arrives to this wedding with his daughter Hermia and her two suitors, Lysander. That's who Hermia wants to marry. And Demetrius, this is the man that her father wants her to marry. So Aegeus demands, Theseus, you've got to settle this for us, enforce Athenian law upon Hermia, execute her if she refuses to marry Demetrius. And so Theseus threatens Hermia. Either, listen, you get lifelong chastity or you get death if you continue to disobey your dad. And so Lysander and Hermia make plans. They're going to flee Athens and they reveal this plan to Helena, Hermia's best friend. Now, Helena <laughs> is in love <laughs> with Demetrius, right? right? Oh yeah, the plot thickens. <laughs> and to win Demetrius' favor, Helena says, hey, I'm going to tell Demetrius, <laughs> the plan that Lysander and Hermia have. So, hey, she tells him they're going to elope. Lysander and Hermia are going to elope. And that's basically our setup. And then we cut to, somewhat randomly, these yeah. six Athenian tradesmen who have decided to put on a play called Pyramus and Thisbe. They've, they're putting it on for Theseus and Hippolytus' wedding. And these men are kind of choosing their parts. And then they agree they're going to meet a little bit later in the woods outside of Athens. So the majority of our play is going to happen in these woods outside of Athens. But the hook of the play happens within Athens, kind of in preparation for this wedding. That's where we are. Okay. Do you guys, are you guys like thrown off by the complications of act one? Or are you like, no, this is easy to track. I got this. Well, on the and, one hand, it's it's Shakespeare, so I get it. On the other hand, he's fond of drawing these caricatures. I mean, how many fathers are willing to 
just do away with their daughters if they don't marry the man they wanted to like that's that seems like he's rounding to the nearest wild there as a character but say it's that, part of the Ian, say that again, he's rounding to the nearest to the nearest wild <laughs> i've never heard that before what is it, it might be mean? a family expression it just means someone who is so intent upon their goal that they're willing to do literally anything whether it actually furthers their goal or not i see i see it's a good idiom it should take that should Sweep the nation. Spread. You know, this is this is a little bit of an aside, but I I showed up to college with all kinds of idioms that I'd grown up around, and slowly over the course of my education, found from fellow students that many of them were inherited from my southern grandfather, who grew no. up in an era where segregation was still a thing, and so some of oh. those idioms oh, do no. not need to be carried a, forward. Right? They had a meaning that you didn't know. <laughs> I was not aware of them. Okay, wow. That led to some funny and some unfortunate (laughs) situations. (laughs) I'm going to put you on the spot, Ian, and you can gladly push this by. Do you remember any of those idioms that are like, I don't mean like the really like dangerous (laughs) ones, but the ones that would be kind of obscure to us? Um, Well, the thing about my grandfather is he doesn't like to curse. Okay. But many of the idioms involved cursing. Sure. So, Christian substitute kind of thing. Yeah. Dag so it. I grew up with, he doesn't know crud from putty. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The original idiom, of course, is not crud. Yeah. Right. You fill in sure. the other word and not putty, but shinola. Oh. oh. So I got to college saying crud from putty and someone looked at me and said, you mean from shinola? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's that the, is so great. the least offensive of all of them, yeah. I assure you. <laughs> 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 I'm going to incorporate that into everyday use, crud from putty. Yeah. You should not do that. that you so? No, no. You say no? How about, how about <laughs> dumber than Al Manure? That was the oh, that's a great one. I've never heard that one either. I kind of like yeah. that one, actually. <laughs> We're far afield from Shakespeare here. We that's, are. That's my bad. I don't know. He made up a lot of words. So. That's true. He did. <laughs> the beginning of this play... We're not into the magic yet, no, but we get a complaint from Aegeus to Theseus, blaming Hermia's love for Lysander on bewitching. Mm-hmm. He says, this man hath bewitched the bosom of my child. What, what's the role that, that magic is going to play within this piece? Emily, it was you who brought this up earlier. Do you have any... First thoughts on this, the magic. Sure. Uh, I think I have a hypothesis that it has something to do with uh, it also being kind of pastoral and that these people are being led out of the urban setting into the forest. And the magic of it is that the everything is upside down and backwards and sideways in the forest um, due to this magic. And in Shakespeare, the supernatural realm is always um, its always where you go to get your ideas challenged and, mm. and shaken up. And I think that's what's going to, to happen here. And it's very like, um, it, Paul is going to be quoted or misquoted <laughs> several times right. here. And I think it has a lot the to Apostle do with... Paul. Right. Yes. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the gospel idea of everything being turned upside down, the last becomes first, um, the, the weak becomes strong. 
that there's something in the magic realm where your vision, it's like, it's a lens through which your vision is challenged. Mm. I really like that. I think that's right. Because what the very first scene that we have in this play, act one, scene one, begins with Theseus and Hippolyta. And Theseus has one Hippolyta, as he says, through violence, right? Mm. He says right away, I have, I have won you as my bride, through, I think he says through harming her or something like that. Um, And, and so this question of power is very relevant in the play and hierarchy. Where do people belong? Who gets to make choices for themselves and for others? Um, And, and that speaks exactly to what you're saying, Emily, uh, that magic becomes this disordering force or an ordering force, right? And that's the question. That's the complexity of the play because we have a lot of disorder in act one, scene one, a lot of, uh, of, of the strong, uh, imposing their will upon the weak. And it happens to be men imposing their will upon women, uh, and and so this is one of those plays that I think kind of ra- uh, begs for a feminist interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. And in modernity, this play is often interpreted in a very feminist kind of power struggle kind of way. I've seen multiple performances of this play when Hippolyta is in chains in Act 1, Scene 1, when she doesn't want to marry Theseus. She's being forced into it against her will. Um, and uh, and. And and it does beg for that, I think. But I think that the deeper and truer way of reading that is that it becomes a question of power and hierarchy. And mm-hmm. what is the real world? Is it this? Uh, is is it the urban world in which the strong is imposing upon the weaker, or is it this magical fairy world when everything's kind of up for grabs and people have a lot more freedom, and yet? They do they really have more freedom there because mm-hmm. they're being enchanted right and left? And isn't that power and yeah. strong exerting itself over the week? And so there actually is a lot of complexity in the question of power and freedom within this play. Absolutely. In some ways, act one is a an over-organized society or like a hyper-organized society in a way. And Entering this kind of magical realm is, as Emily said, it's kind of an opportunity maybe for, you know, like a a reordering, a flipping of this very kind of rigid kind of ordered society. Heidi, I'm thinking about the last play I think that you were on with me was The Tempest. And The Tempest, almost all of The Tempest occurs in what you called a green, green world. world. Do you want to you want to talk a little bit about I mean do you think that's what this different realm that we're going to enter in act 2 is this a is it a green world that we're going to be entering? Yeah, I think so. A lot of Shakespeare's comedies have what scholars commentators often call the green world which is exactly what Emily said. I mean she described it very well. This this realm in which all bets are off when you don't have uh civilization imposed upon uh the the characters uh that enter into this green world we see it in the tempest we see it a little bit in um 
in Merchant of Venice with Belmont, uh, and and definitely in Midsummer Night's Dream. This is probably the most obvious one. When the uh, although it's also an as you like it, right? The Forest of Arden, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's a realm where. Uh, The rules are suspended and a new societal order, a new social order, and a new psychological order comes through the uh, suspension of the rules in the green world. And this is something Shakespeare really had to create in order to get rid of the rules, so to speak, and examine what it would be like because he was a late medieval slash renaissance playwright. And so the world was a very orderly place. Uh, and, um, And so... He didn't have kind of this freedom to create whatever he wanted. He had to create a space within his place, a fictional place where where his characters could go and reorder their society um, and in a way that might potentially be more just. And in this particular play, uh, the father figure is brutally unjust in Act 1, Scene 1. Both Theseus and, and Idrius are uh especially Aegeus. It's, and Theseus is a really complicated character. But um, with Aegeus, we have like a father who's clearly irrational and yet backed up by the leader, right? And so they're, they, they have to go somewhere else in order to find freedom and reordering. Um, and some of the complexity of the play comes through, are they really free even in the green world, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This... Green World idea is so prominent in the last full-length play that we did, The Winter's Tale. So Emily Maya and I just finished uh, the Q&A session for The Winter's Tale. The first two and a half acts occur in Sicilia, very ordered, very regimented, and once again, dominated by this, just a tyrant, a tyrant. And then we switch halfway through the play and 16 years later to Bohemia. And the first scene in Bohemia is in a way a a sort of reckoning of what the worst fears of Cecilia are about Bohemia. We start with a pickpocket in Bohemia. He's stealing from people, right? And it's just kind of like, I think Shakespeare is having a little fun there. Like, this is exactly what Cecilia says that Bohemia is like. It's just like, it's nothing but chaos and licentiousness and immorality. And then the next scene is just a huge party. And it's so much fun. And there's dancing and there's singing. And there's so much freedom there. And, and that begins to unwind the terrible damage that's done in the first two and a half, three acts of The Winter's Tale. So I'm curious what kind of strategy Shakespeare is going to employ using his magic in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Is it going to be like the Tempest magic? Is it going to be like the magic uh, of Bohemia in The Winter's Tale? That's kind of one of the questions that I have going forward. Love is all over this play, um, Emily was asking whether or not uh, we, we were talking about like, is this, is the, is the third play or our third most popular play, a comedy or a romance? This play seems to me like a little bit more romance than comedy, but it's really funny. Also, I want to talk about the vision of love 
in this play. And I want to hear from Helena. So I'm going to play a little bit of audio. The thing that I want everyone to listen to in the middle of this monologue from Helena is two lines. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Let's listen to Helena from Act One of A Midsummer Night's Dream. How happy some or other some can be. Through Athens, I am thought as fair as she. But what of that? Demetrius thinks not so. He will not know what all but he do know. And as he errs doting on Hermia's eyes, so I admiring of his qualities. Things base and vile, holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. And therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. As waggish boys in game themselves forswear, so the boy love is perjured everywhere. For ere Demetrius looked on Hermia's eyne, he hailed down oaths that he was only mine. And when this hail some heat from Hermia felt, so he dissolved, and showers of oaths did melt. I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight. Then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. But herein mean I to enrich my pain, to have his sight thither and back again. That was Helena saying, love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. How is Helena's vision of love, is it set in contrast with what we've seen of love in the first part of this play, Ian, do you see a, a distinction being drawn by our playwright? I, this is a confusing monologue for me. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I have a great answer to that. I, I think th- that so far in the controversy between, are we calling him Aegeus, the father, right? the, the strict father? So between Aegeus and, with, and his daughter and Lysander, who are in love with one another, love is set opposite to law. Right. I mean, this is that's what Aegeus uh, appeals to the law of Athens. Right. I get to be right in the situation or I get to slaughter my daughter. We've already been over how that's crazy. But anyway, so in this situation, um, in calling Cupid blind, it seems like I'm going to get the girls names mixed up. Hermia and Helena. It seems like Helena is appealing to love as something that's just as inflexible because Mm. it's against her Mm. as the law is from Hermia's perspective. And so, whereas I was expecting law versus or law versus love based on the opening scene, I'm now getting love as a law, as an inflexible law, as something that can't be uh, tampered with or bent to one's own will, which isn't going to stop her from trying, of course. But um, so that's interesting to me. And I don't know what you guys make of that. Say, say more about that, Ian. Why is love inflexible for, for Helena? Well, it could be. It could be as simple as that she's a woman instead of a man, and so she's mm-hmm. not in the decision-making seat in in this play or in this yeah. era. Um, and she hasn't found a way to woo Demetrius's attentions 
Although we're given to believe that Demetrius was in love with her before yeah. he got an offer from Hermia's father. So that's all confusing as well. But all of that paints a picture for me of love as something that is, um, well, her experience of love is far different from Hermia's experience of love. There's something authentic about the love between Hermia and Lysander and something calculated about the love between Demetrius and Hermia. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that pulls out of Helena a response in kind, which is, I am going to do whatever it takes to affect the scenario myself. I'm going to interpose my will on this on this situation. And, and she appears to think that if she pulls that off, she will get the love she's looking for. Yeah. Which the reader, I mean, from my vantage point, the reader sits and looks at that definition of love and says, "You don't, you don't understand." Yeah, um, maybe love is something from the woods, from the from the green realm or whatever we we're yeah. calling it, right? Um, it's it's elusive and it it comes upon you and it acts upon you rather than you calculating and grasping and controlling it. So I wonder if that's one of the things we're going to watch throughout the play is this a battle over love's true definition and where it actually springs from. And Emily, I mean, we're going to see to flash forward to act two, we're going to see the undoing of Helena's kind of like love by force of will philosophy when the sprinkling of the love potion happens amongst all these lovers and everything just goes haywire, right? Yeah. Everything just gets all <laughs> backwards. Emily, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really, I love everything that Ian said. It was also, I was also thinking about how similar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Agreeable. Oh no, I disagree. I I hate everything Ian said. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was thinking about how Helena's vision, her vision of love is so similar to that, the one that comes from the law. Um, Just to continue on with what Ian is saying, uh, Aegeus and Theseus, when they they basically are accusing Hermia of not uh, knowing her own mind or not um, loving properly, and that she's being willful and that her love is blind. Mm. Um, and if only she would, and it's from the other direction, right? If only she would apply the law to her understanding, then she would get the proper outcome, the proper love. Right. Yeah. If she would only do what her father's instructing her to do, all would be well with her. I like Lysander's perspective though i mean i'm I'm a bleeding heart I, I love the lovers i think it's great but but the way that he responds is hold on just a second everything that i have recommends me as well or better than demetrius and i have it on good authority that he was in love with somebody else a second ago mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. whatever the conversation is here it isn't about love those that's not where we're getting this decision yeah um that's true that i think that's the voice of the playwright on the whole situation i see the same way i think also I really, I thought that Ian, just a couple minutes ago when you couldn't remember it, whether it was Helena or Hermia, yeah. right? Which one is which, right? That's yeah. part of the play. Like the whole, just exactly what you just said, that Demetrius and Lysander are essentially the same person. They har- mm. they have no, no independent selfhood anywhere throughout the play, right? Mm. If one guy is just as good as the other guy, they have the same amount of fortune. They're the same level of handsome. They're the same level of ability, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And they, they're, so pick one, right? Like, and for whatever reason, Gius pick or Aegeus picked Demetrius. And now he's just imposing that, not out of a true desire for happiness at all or love, right? But because he said so, mm. like that's essentially the message that comes to Hermia, you know, and and what Theseus says to her 
and in a nutshell is like, you know, once you start pulling a thread out, the whole tapestry falls mm-hmm. apart, right? And so you've got to do what your father says, um, which is why we need a green world. Um, mm. And and that's also true for Hermia and Helena. We learn that uh, they're both considered equally pretty, both considered equally desirable. They're both of the same social status, right? They're interchangeable, except that we later learn that Hermia is kind of is small and dark and Helena is tall and fair. And that's the only difference. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that uh, kind of bleeds into this whole love is blind question right. that, that love is something that happens to you. It doesn't matter who the person is. They're interchangeable lovers and the, uh, the love potion ends up kind of cementing that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it, there's this then question that Shakespeare seems to be asking about the nature of love, just exactly what you said. And is happiness out of marriage something that comes when you just accept that love is blind? Or is it something that happens when you assert your independence and actually try to seek for what you want? And I frankly think the play doesn't answer that question. It just raises it. Yeah. And in in Oberon and Fairy Queen's name, Titania. Oh, Titania. Titania. Yes. Which is (laughs) titanium, Titania. That's very cool. Um, Her will is iron. Absolutely. But yeah, their, their controversy, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but their controversy is along those same lines, Heidi, with the, are we going to, am I not your, your Lord is basically what he said. Hierarchy. Who Who are you talking to here? Right. And she says, well, am I not your lady? And all of a sudden we have what so far appears to me to be the only real relationship in the whole, in the whole play. Right between two quarreling spouses, not lovers, spouses. Mm -hmm. There's a distinction for you. You know, every, you know, uh, happy marriages are pretty actual marriages, not happy lovers heading towards marriage, but a happy marriage is actually pretty rare in Shakespeare. Um, Mm. And, and I, I think, we'll we'll see what we think about Titania, (laughs) Titania and Oberon here. That's going to be really fun. Yeah. Galen and I have been reading this book that I read 10 years ago and fell in love with. And I'm just going to, plump it on the show. It's called A Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. I recommend it. Highest possible recommendation. It's ostensibly a book about leadership, but really it's just, it's about like all human relationships. And one of his, one of his things that he's really emphatic about is Edwin Friedman. He has this phrase, uh, couples must separate so that they don't separate. Hmm. The idea being there has to be a kind of when you're in a relationship, it's so much easier to just never disturb the peace. You know, if something's bothering you, it's better to just never disturb the peace and to just kind of like keep that warm, intimate feeling intact. But maybe something is kind of like bothering you. Maybe something is bothering her in the back of your mind, but I'm not going to talk about it because it's just going to only, you know, like cause waves. And Friedman is no separate so you don't separate you know you have to kind of you have to retain your individuality within this relationship and it is a source of pain when you like do a small separation you know mm. it's a source of pain but with the ultimate goal of like strengthening the long term relationship right which is in, toward a in the source of the source of pain perhaps is we all feel a pressure to maintain the status quo to maintain the feeling of intimacy to maintain right. peace that's it's almost like a it's a law of of romantic relationships right and so to make those waves intentionally is to stand forward and say behold 
I have failed this law, this little yeah. law of relationships, right? But it hedges against an ultimate greater failure yeah. or breakdown, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. The second scene in Act One is with six Athenian tradesmen who are preparing for this play for Theseus's wedding. I want to just talk about it for a second because um, we see another favorite trope of Shakespeare's, which is the play within the play. He loves the plays within the plays, and we love the plays within the plays. <laughs> I want to ask you, why does he put another comedy within this kind of fantastical comedy? So the story that is going to be enacted here is the death of Pyramus and Thisbe. And Quince calls it the most lamentable comedy and most cruel death, the, the most cruel death of Pyramus and Thisbe. And we don't see the play in this act, but we will see it a little bit later. And it is indeed a lamentable comedy. It's, it's <laughs> just absurd, but it's funny. It's like it begs to be played with great slapstick. Um, what is Shakespeare up to here with this? comedic bit within his play. Do you, do you, does anyone have a suspicion? Well, Shakespeare is, he, he likes to have a low plot going on in the comedies, right? So we've got the high plot with the high born characters right? and then a low plot uh, with more, I guess we'd say blue collar, like uh, kind of characters who, and the low plot mirrors the high plot. Right. Um, And, and, and adds, a lot of comedy gives that opportunity for farce uh, without making any of the high plot actors or characters look ridiculous within the Mm. play. Um, But that even that gets a little bit permeable once we get to bottom and Titania, right? Um, Which comes (laughs) later in the play. Um, But that we have with what are often called the mechanicals here um, that the mechanicals are, trying to put on a play about love that they are taking very seriously, but they are ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. We can see that they are ridiculous. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on in this high plot as well, that Mm -hmm. these characters are taking this very, very seriously. Hermia, Demetrius, uh, all of them, right? This They're making something very serious that actually to us is a little bit ridiculous, right? Why in the world (laughs) is Aegeus insisting on on Hermia marrying Demetrius when she can marry Lysander, it's the same. That's ridiculous, right? Mm, But mm -hmm. they don't see it that way. They see themselves as putting on this lamentable tragedy. And we know that all this could be ironed out if people are willing to be reasonable for 15 seconds, right? But instead, (laughs) we're going to get five acts out of this. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on also with the mechanicals and their plot. Yeah. Mm. I I have taken to doing family Q&As for our Q&A session. So we'll probably bring a family on at the end of this play. Cool. And the first one that we did was with my friends, the Maedas and um, Mercedes, uh, one of the Maeda kids, I think Mercedes is 16. She asked a question um, basically about high plots and low plots. And her question was kind of like, why does Shakespeare insist on having these, like, like these series of basically fart jokes in these beautiful <laughs> elevated plays? And I, I 
felt very gratified that I knew what Mercedes' favorite show was. Have you guys seen the Great British Baking Show? Yes. Yeah. Guys, and I was like, Yes, we're good Americans. <laughs> I said, Mercedes, your favorite show is the Great British Baking Show. How can you ask why is there like a low plot when you like the Great British Baking Show? She's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, the comedians. The comedians yeah. are the low plot in the Great British Baking Show. There's James all this like is the low plot. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. He's the low plot. And it works. There's this, because it's about like, all of this fine dining and this beautiful tent and flowers and incredible ingredients. And you've got to mix in some of like bottom and quince into the great British baking show, or it just becomes just a little bit too precious. You know, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. What a and great Shakespeare's analogy. a master. He's a master at this. He's like, okay, we've had, you've been with the wealthy people who are really stodgy long enough. Let's get you into the earth again and let's get you remember. <laughs> and that's what, I mean, these six characters, to your point, Heidi, they're, they're the perfect kind of low plot antidote to all the highborn characters. Mm. Oh, that's great. That is great. What do we look for in act two? What are the kind of questions that we should be asking this play at the conclusion of act one act one we know where our plot is going we've got you know whatever star-crossed lovers these two couples that are going to meet out in the woods outside of athens and we know that this play is going to be performed in the wedding that's essentially all we really know thus far what are the questions that we should be asking going into act two I think the other great question that the play within a play raises is the same that all Shakespeare's play within a plays raise, which is the role of performance and storytelling and uh, the relationship between fiction and reality. Mm. Uh, and I think there's a sense in which actually the play, the storytelling is a continuum of the green world and another lens through which to view reality. And I as that plot develops, it raises questions about what is real and how do we understand ourselves? Yeah. Well, Heidi. and I think anybody after listening to this podcast or, you know, getting to the end of act one is going to be asking, what's the forest going to be like, right? Mm -hmm. What's it going to be like out there? They're leaving civilization, leaving, leaving everything behind to go find their lovers, which by the way, I just feel like Helena's strategy is really bad, but here, having, <laughs> having liked guys who didn't like me back in high school, who liked other girls, I would be like, thank goodness. Like, what do I have to do to shield Hermia and Lysander so that I could have Demetrius back to myself more? Ha -ha. So I feel like her strategy is really flawed, but I mean, that's what gets the two of, that's what gets the two of them into the green world. And that's what we got to have. So the next step is getting them out into the forest to see what happens. Shake yeah. things up. Yep. Yeah. Ian. I, yeah, they, they, they stole my answer. What's going to happen in the forest. And yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I love the action. I love the plot. That's my favorite. And so I'm like, are there bears? I want there to be bears, right? Are we, is someone going to get eaten? Like <laughs> that's the winter's exit, tale. Pursued by bear. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> But either either way, yeah, what's going to happen in the forest? And I think to piggyback off of Emily's comment, shocker, um, this Agreeable. this distinction between it. it's terrible, it's terrible, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> right? Um, 
<laughs> the distinction between what's real and what is unreal absolutely is a lens to be applied to the question of love. Um, and so we're going to get, I would assume, some visions of unreal love, fanciful love, imaginary love, and real love throughout the rest of the play. And so that seems to be a thematic thread we ought to pay attention to going into act two. We're so glad everyone that you joined us for act one of A Midsummer Night's Dream. We are hosted by the Circe Institute, which is one of the leaders of the burgeoning classical Christian renewal and education. If you'd like to know more about the Circe Institute website, circeinstitute.org. There you can learn everything that you would like to about just what is classical education. And just one little plot point addendum to that. It's believed that Shakespeare's education that he received growing up is very, very akin to a lot of the chief principles in the Christian classical education movement. So if you would like for your eight-year-old to begin speaking and conjugating verbs <laughs> like William Shakespeare, please have a look. CirceInstitute.org. Please join us next week for Act Two when we enter the woods in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Thank you for joining us for The Play's The Thing. And as always, happy reading. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.